Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose, and what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by attorney, professor, and congressional candidate for New York's 12th district, Suraj Patel. Stay tuned. So here in the U.S., it's primary election time for many voters, leading up to the midterm elections in November. At some level, we all want to be represented fairly and by people who speak to a compelling vision of progress and common sense. Speaking of common sense, I'm truly grateful to everyone for listening to the show, sharing it with your friends, subscribing to, rating, and downloading the podcast at your favorite sites, and following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. So the representation of South Asian and Indian Americans has no shortage these days in the civic arena, and so it's great to see so many candidates who are sharing their ideas and making our community more visible and heard. In the case of Suraj Patel, an attorney, activist, business leader, and business ethics professor, he's been a model of resilience and emblematic of this visibility. He was born in Mississippi to immigrant parents, and along with his extended family, worked hard at cultivating opportunities, bussing tables, working in his parents' bodega, doing motel laundry, helping out on construction sites, and eventually going to college and earning a policy and law degree. Suraj worked with President Obama on his campaigns and in the White House, and then as a community organizer. His infectious enthusiasm and pragmatic progressive vision are what led him to run for Congress in his home of New York's 12th district in 2018 and 2020, nearly winning in two hard-fought tight campaigns. This year, he's making a congressional run again for a third time, seeking to be the Democratic nominee, and while facing new challenges of redrawn district maps and two long-standing incumbents, he's standing with the optimism of a platform based on pro-growth, pro-democracy, pro-science, and pro-safety, and banking on Democratic voters who are hungry for new leaders. We caught up for a conversation, and you know, we always hear candidates that say this election is the most compelling and most important of our lifetimes. So I wanted to know for Suraj, having done this twice before, what so far made this campaign experience palpably different? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not lying to you when I say that this feels fundamentally different and it's palpable. And every day that we're outside uh, talking to voters, people recognize that as a Democrat, as Democrats, um, which we all are practically in New York, that this this party and this city and this country is at a turning point. Uh, liberal democracy across the world is under attack. We see it in Ukraine and we see it violently. We also see it with misinformation, with echo chambers, with cyber warfare, with online platforms and their, and their role. And I think that if we fundamentally want to save liberal democracy, then we need a new generation of leaders who uh, understand those challenges uh, and are from this century and, and, you know, understand them and want to want to fight back. You know, in my race now, I've got two incumbents pitted against each other who have been in office for 60 years combined in Congress, 80 years combined if you count their prior city council and things like that. And the question I have is those two are going to be fighting for credit 
for the state of the country and the party today. So if you're happy with inflation, if you're happy with crime, if you're happy with any action on climate change or immigration, if you're happy with the systematic destruction of Roe versus Wade, these are the people that are saying, trust us, we got this. Yeah. My fundamental problem now is that we now have a party that has the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And we have seen that 1990s Democrats no longer have answers for 2022 Republicans and Mitch McConnell. Mm. And if there is a transition period and time for change, and you've got the president, you know, President Biden, who I support, you know, we're heading for what likely will be a big midterm loss. This yeah. is the time to shift messages and messengers. Can we make a new case for democratic values across the country in order to win this country back? Because right now we're on a big losing streak. And, yeah. you know, that frustration is so palpable out there. And then there's the question of what kind of change. And the question is, should, should it be optimistic? Should it be hopeful? Should it be elevating the best parts of America and winning back people by extending a hand and persuading, or do we want to drown out the other side? And I fundamentally believe in the former. You know, a lot of this goes back to relationship development. And you mentioned the echo chambers and the ways in which we, in some ways, foster and cultivate relationships, whether that's online or in person. Having run twice before, were there some tangible lessons and even motivations from those two previous campaigns in light of the backdrop you've just described that you've been able to take away and, and now seem a little bit like they're accelerators in, in some way that are different for your campaign this time. Totally. I mean, first off, persistence, determination, the things that, that, that bring you back to a third race after you lost by the narrow, one of the narrowest margins in the country is what people are looking for. It is not It is not banging your head against a wall on climate change with the same policy over and over. It is coming up with new ideas to try and convince and, and persuade. Look, my perspective is so different from many of the Democrats, including the two incumbents in office. My family moved here with almost nothing in 1960s. My dad was an engineer, uh, came here to become an engineer from India, uh, worked for the MTA, which is our mass transit system here in New York um, as an engineer. And we lived above a little bodega that we ran, a little shop, convenience store. And it was my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, my grandmother, my grandfather, my great grandmother, uh, and my three brothers and cousins in a one bedroom apartment above that bodega that we ran. And I remember like sleeping in a line, I'm sure many of your listeners remember that too, on a living room floor and, and sorting newspapers in the morning to sell, you know, for an extra dime. Back then you could get the New York Times in separate pieces. Yeah. If you put them together, piece them together yourself, you could, you could make some more profit. I got to live through this country and, and what it offers you when education, when opportunity, when upward mobility are put on display and we lead best that way. My parents sacrificed so much to get us here, to get me to Stanford, as you mentioned, to yeah. get me to work, you know, to, to law school in New York City and to teach at NYU and to work for the greatest president of my lifetime, Barack Obama. And I take a perspective that is very, I think, different from some of these folks in office today, which is not, you know, I have, I've worked in business. I've signed both sides of the paycheck. I fought foreclosures. You have to work with people you disagree with. Yeah. You don't have the luxury like Congress does of only surrounding yourself with people who agree with you. I think we need some of that perspective here. And I'm starting to realize people aren't, you know, after two campaigns, I realized people mostly don't think of themselves on a left, right plane. Yeah, I really do. You know, this idea that like we should be challenging these incumbents from left or from right or progressive or not, isn't what I'm seeing. I think we need to challenge them on urgency, mm. on speed. 
where are the urgency, where is the urgency in government to tackle the baby formula shortage? You know, where was the urgency to tackle climate change? I think I want to bring that kind of urgency because, you know, frankly, we don't have time. Is the action that you talk about and the urgency that you talk about, especially when you're running against two career politicians and also a prominent activist, you know, how do you position yourself to be in some ways poised to not just be new and be someone who's, you know, really prospectively going to change and take some great urgent action, but also for stability and reliability and the way that perhaps those other two career politicians to do give credit where credit is due have been so successful for so long. Yeah, and that's what I guess that's where I would push back. If we're talking about stability, does anyone of your listeners believe that we're in a stable, stable situation right now? Period. Whether it's on abortion rights or inflation, like I said, seven and a half percent unemployment rate in my city, in New York City, which is twice the national average. Um, you know, I'm the only one bringing a perspective here that's, like I said, worked in the private and public sector yeah. to run for this office, um, to have, you know, known what it's like to make payroll when times are tough. I think there's just a different perspective. That's what makes it this not a clean, crisp, like, oh, here's a progressive challenger to Maloney or Nadler. Yeah. Like, I have a practical streak about me that is purely about um, bringing an outside perspective into government, which we desperately and sorely need, you know? You know, the funny thing about urgency that I talk about, like, there's a lot of unhappiness with government from all sides. Sure. And I think part of it is that, like, we have grown accustomed to being able to order on our phones a car to pick you up or deliver milk to you in 20 minutes or delicious Thai food in 25 minutes. All those things. Government hasn't shifted to a speedier, more nimble operation and apparatus to tackle challenges. Yeah. And I think, like, we need some of that outside perspective to do that. You know what I mean? You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our chat with congressional candidate Suraj Patel. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, and our conversation with New York congressional candidate Suraj Patel. When you have ideas that are generated, particularly from those who are challenging the status quo, is it inevitable that, you know, politicians in general are always in some ways kind of fighting for their platforms and, and therefore aiming to maintain their power? And, and so to some degree, if you were to, to win this, this race, what stops you from from being in the same sort of cycle um, in that way? Being nimble and 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 having the same kind of idea generation sounds amazing. Uh, is is it inevitable that politicians at some point are going to want to maintain their power so that they could actually enact and execute on these great ideas? Well, look, I think that if you keep delivering, and if you you know, then 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 there's no friction between both being able to be elected. And deliver. My argument, I think, is that what does delivery mean? At this point, my opponents will say, we've been in office for 60 years. Yeah. We've passed X, Y, and Z bill in the 90s and the 2000s. We haven't passed anything recently, one can yeah. say, and uh, of consequence. And, and I think that, um, to me, delivering as, as a congressperson isn't just about 
being one 435th of one half of one third of government and going down to Washington, D.C. and pulling the lever for the right sort of choice and coming back and saying, see, I did it right. I voted. I did this. I think it's taking every single, you know, means at your disposal, every form of medium, every, you know, social and digital and podcast, whatever, whatever it can, whatever it takes to persuade once again, folks who disagree with us in order to make some progress. I think that's like a fundamental distinction between how I define success and how, um, you know, these two uh, define success. I want to explain to folks who may not understand this or may be listening and trying to capture this for the first time, but can you explain briefly to those who may not know or may not be aware of why district remapping happens? And for that matter, you know, how it affects voters, particularly those who may be marginalized or more vulnerable. So this is, you know, the the issue of the day. Yeah. I said, you know, to protect democracy. Uh, and I mentioned a bunch of new threats. Well, the old threats exist, voter suppression and gerrymandering. Now, every 10 years, by constitution, you have to reapportion districts based on population changes. And in New York, in 2014, the voters of New York uh, voted to um, amend the constitution to make gerrymandering for partisan uh, benefit illegal. Yeah. And we learned in November that Representative Maloney, my opponent, angled to shed thousands of young and Latino voters out of her district because they wouldn't vote for her. Because two years ago, I almost beat her. Like I said, by, by around 3,000 votes is the only margin, is the margin she had. And we learned that the, the other opponent also had been trying to draw his own lines. And this New Yorker, New York uh, Democrats got caught. By and large, a Supreme Court of New York, which was appointed by, you know, seven Democratic judges throughout a democratic gerrymander and uh just a couple of weeks ago and in an unprecedented situation had a special master a neutral arbiter draw new maps and those new maps reflect sort of the rules that you typically I, i'm a lawyer and i teach this a lot so the rules you typically go by when you draw districts compactness fairness you know communities of interest etc and they ended up drawing two incumbents against each other and me yeah and by the way your house was not even in the in the original map, is that correct? Yeah, so so the wild thing is, when I almost beat Representative Maloney two years ago, and this year the map came out, my house was drawn out by, of the district by one half a block. Yeah. Now, coincidence, I don't think so. But then when the judge and the special master redrew the maps, they drew me in by one half a block. Yeah. And once again, coincidence, I don't think so. I think that someone out there saw that it was clearly undemocratic to draw a primary opponent out of your district and put me back in. And I think that that just is is a, a comeuppance uh, that some of these folks deserve. That if you if you, it seems to me the only thing that our two incumbents are effective at is maintaining their power, yeah. because everything else it seems has been a, a standstill. You're a glowing example, as you mentioned, of sort of Americanism and American resilience. And I'm imagining that this translates to a fair amount of empathy with, you know, so many of your constituents, but for that matter, a lot of other Americans. How does that for you, and and in this backdrop of the redistricting you just talked about, how, how does that translate to, you know, the marginalized? Also, how does it translate to perhaps campaign donors who may have deeper pockets and are hungry for the change that you're talking about, like balancing both of those two crowds. It it, ma- it matters, and I think that, like uh, you know, I always argue, there's nothing more progressive than education, opportunity, and mobility. Yeah. That we shouldn't denigrate success, economic success, or anything like that. We should 
not only celebrate it, but hope and make policies to make sure it's accessible to all. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of race that, you know, we've got this unique place. Everyone says, oh, this district is, uh, you know, is, is extremely white, extremely wealthy. You know, how are you going to win? And I'm, I'm saying that the Democratic Party and, and the city in its leadership ought to reflect the breadth and diversity of its constituents. And many of the folks in this district are one or two generations removed from escaping Nazi Germany or Poland and resettling on the West Side. And we see more and more commonality with, you know, some of the some of those folks in this district than you would just assume at Im- initial glance. Right. And I think that people are educated and they're smart and they understand that we ought to be leading, leading with optimism and hope and brimming with it because you need to will into the world what you want to see. Does that in some ways amount to distilling issues like climate change and climate consciousness, public safety um, immigration, um, upward mobility, does it amount to distilling this differently to different audiences? How do you actually maintain your platform and, and maintain a very consistent message with people? Well, I think well, all the things you named are so universal. You know, we find ourselves listening to politicians a lot, like I mentioned, dividing and or creating contrast where it doesn't exist. Yeah. I think you'd be hard pressed outside of the you know political consultant class an elected official class to find people who don't want safety. You'd be hard pressed to find people who don't want education, uh, economic opportunity for all. You'd be hard pressed to find people who disagree that in our most disadvantaged neighborhoods, we should uh, focus and emphasize our hardest in order to create uh, opportunity. You know, I think you'd yeah. be really hard pressed to find that. And maybe sometimes people will just get in their echo chambers about it. But, but you see that there's this like major disconnect between the way that our parties and our elected officials talk, the way I'm sure many of your listeners and yourself get emails from the Democratic National Committee or, or whatever, and it's like, siren, siren, please give us $4 because North Korea might nuke South Korea. You're like, what <laughs> What are you talking about? These are yeah. completely nonsensical yeah. and non-sequitur things. And, and it's just, we've got, it's like a silly season. You know, we learned some of the worst lessons. Uh, you know, from from Donald Trump and Sarah Palin, and it's yeah. like let's not let's not become, you know, some version of of what we you know detest. I, I've asked this to others before, but do you remember the moment or maybe series of moments that drew you to become more civically engaged and and even run for office in the first place? You know, do you remember that sort of period of your life? And for that matter, reflecting back on that now, um, has have those motivations perhaps changed at all? Yeah, I, I well, absolutely. When I was younger and I growing up in a town where my brother and I were the diversity yeah. and, you know, we, we had immigrated here and bounced around the country looking for economic opportunity with like running pizza delivery or the bodega to motels to restaurant, whatever. We bounced around all over the place and, and we would get to see all of America. And we also got to see that, you know, if you really want to arrive here, you need to be part of its body politic, you need to be part of its civic fabric, you need to be part of its representation. So as a young age, I got very interested in the idea that your existence in this country is affirmed by the fact that people, the peers uh, of yours in this country, choose you to represent them in some cases. Yeah. And it really came home in uh, 2007 and eight when I got to see my first ever campaign in my entire life bring people together with that same type of energy and message. And that was the Obama campaign. And so I left law school. I dropped everything much to my 
Desi parents' dismay to go do that. You know, I'd already disappointed them by choosing law school over med school. And then I decided right. to leave med school, leave law school to work for President Obama's campaigns and eventually to the White House. And I went back and, you know, finished law school. But I got to say, you know, watching that campaign happen was exactly what brought me into this. And then the trigger point to really be like, let's really get in this and run for office and all those things is after Trump's election and saying that whatever we're doing is not working, yeah. that we can't just trust seniority. We cannot just trust experience when experience brought us here. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our chat with congressional candidate Suraj Patel. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, and our conversation with New York congressional candidate Suraj Patel. Do you think that, I was just reading parts of your platform on your website, do you think that an abundant society is actually possible in New York City without there, without there being people who are eventually going to be on technically victims of that abundant society um, or balance sort of levers of that abundant society? Yeah, do you think that's actually possible? I think it's just a classic public choice problem, right? The benefits of an abandoned society, and by that to let everyone know, I mean is saying yes to things, saying yeah. yes to more transit, saying yes to more housing, saying yes to more infrastructure instead of you know falling victim to NIMBYism. Yeah. I think the benefits of this are diffuse and obviously the costs are concentrated and therefore you have a vocal minority and that's what it is that has you know stopped progress in many ways in this country whether it's building more universities or increasing class size uh, uh, in, in our elite colleges and universities, all of those things need to happen in, as a collective. Yeah. And I think that we just have to stay hammering this as, as, as where we go and, and staying positive about it. But yes, I think it's fundamentally possible. I think we've seen it. I think New York is a unique place. I mean, these are, you know, we are full of liberal voters, people who are completely fine paying um, tax dollars to help the less privileged. But I will also say this, when you're taxed at 51% uh, of your income in New York, which is like a Sweden level tax rate, we ought to give people Sweden level services like transit, like garbage pickup, like childcare, like paid family leave, like pre-K, like universal comprehensive mental health services, you know? Sure. and. Some of this, in terms of promising a lot of people everything, you have to deliver on the layups. And, yeah. you know, I made a big issue in my race so far of the baby fam formula shortage. You know, we were the first campaign to call for the president to invoke the DPA on it uh, and talk about it, even though it stepped on a message. I wrote a, my first ever New York Times op-ed, uh, which ran in print a couple of weeks ago. And, and a couple of days later, the president invoked the DPA. Yeah. And I said, look, you know, people aren't going to trust us to deliver childcare and climate legislation and things like that if we can't make the layups. And, and I think that's what we have to focus on in order to get to those bigger things. One, as a pediatrician, I appreciate that. I, I'm also looking forward to Scandinavian style treats on every corner in, uh, mm -hmm. in New York. So, and, and speaking of sort of your own background, I'm, I'm curious about, the, about this. What does it feel like to be an Indian American or a South Asian American in New York City in 2022? 
You know, I mean, the city is, is in many ways full of Indian Americans <laughs> and South Asians. One of the things people ask me all the time is like, how did you possibly get you know, posters up on all these corners at these bodegas? How does, you know, how does Uber drivers have an air freshener with your vote June 20th, you know, now August? Yeah. And I'm like, because these people are looking for someone who looks like them to represent them, even if they can't vote. Yeah. Um, the distribution and supply chain of this country uh, or a city runs on people who kind of look like me and not just Indian Americans or South Asians, but just overall, you know, immigrants, first generation immigrants, people like that. And so I think it's very exciting. And how does being the son of an Indian American immigrant family, how does it inform you as a candidate and, and as a legal professional, you know, basically in a, an adult uh, professional in New York City, how is your South Asian background sort of part of your everyday? I mean, it's very much part of my everyday. I, I, you know, like I mentioned to you about my family history and everything, I think that we, well, one, my family is extremely supportive and, and has enveloped this campaign. Um, my younger brother works on the campaign. My older brother helps me fundraise. Yeah. My parents are around all the time. It's a family affair. You know, I did my first video, launch video in both English and Gujarati. Yeah. As a hat tip to, you know, where we are and arriving as a community in this country. And it, it's a, it's such a massive part of my identity, you know, that, that people, when people ask me, like, tell me about yourself because of the cultural nature I grew up in, I start with, well, I'm, you know, the second of four sons, uh, in a family where I grew up with my, you know, I, I talk about my relations before yeah. I talk about whatever else. And, and I think that those are just the worldview things that happen when you grow up the way we did. You've describe yourself as a, and tell me if I'm, I'm right on this, a, a pragmatic progressive. In that way, in an era of just so much polarization, is this description a proxy, you think, for someone who is, like you said, trying to get that urgent action, but also is seeking collaboration and compromise? And that's exactly right. I mean, this is what I was, you know, alluding to before. I have to work with people I disagree with in business all the time. And I teach to people at NYU that I disagree with politically and that disagree with me politically. And I don't, it's not like I think that I'm defining people as opponents and supporters. That's not how life works. Yeah. And in this case, if the goals are progressive, maybe to me, the means to reach there are pragmatic. Mm. That, that might be the best encapsulation of, of how I look at this. How do you practically get rid of the of those echo chambers and the friction? Yeah, and I think that's a huge part of this. You know, I was reading a study about at, at the beginning of every major communications revolution, there seems to be this transition period where there's an uh, element of the population that can get pulled up or drawn up into a populist or authoritarian streak. That happened with the radio and the advent of the radio in World War One happened with the advent of the television and, and Germany and authoritarianism in World War Two, And I think we're, we're living through this authoritarian impulse across the world. It's not just America, but you see it, whether it's Turkey or wherever. And, and, and we think that, you know, we're going to go through this transition period in which there will be an eventual movement to a place where everyone grew up with the internet and everyone knows that nothing on it's real. Yeah. But right now we still have folks on the internet that are, consuming information as if it's an edited newspaper with fact yeah. checking. You know what I'm okay. saying? And I think we have to somehow ferry this generation across to the other side and then things will be back to critical thinking and normal. It just is that. In, in essence, this comes back to trust, right? So like how, how do you generate trust? How does it 
inform relationship building and and therefore community building. Ultimately, I mean, our power to vote is is our singular vehicle of individual representation and democracy. So for those who are choosing you and your campaign, what do you think makes you most entrustable and trustworthy to represent New Yorkers in Congress? I think nothing is more telling than the fact that I'm back at it. Three races, three times, very heartbreaking loss last time that went to manual recount and lawsuits about vote by mail and ballots being lost or not, sorry, not counted because of the lack of postmarks and all those things. And, you know, I think sometimes you have to show people that you're not quitting and that's, that's what you're going to get in your congressperson. Well, listen, Suraj, I know people aren't quitting on you and we wish you nothing but success and all the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate it. And we will uh, fight on. By the way, for those listening, uh, we're looking at an August 23rd primary election in New York City and would love to have your support every which way. Tell your friends, tell your family, make sure they vote. If you can contribute, please contribute to us because this is a people-powered, 100% non-corporate campaign. Thanks, Suraj. And you can visit surajpatel.nyc for more information. No matter where you are, please get involved in your community somehow so that your voice is heard. Congratulations to all the dads and grads out there here in the U.S. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darndekar. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Darndekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen online at ruckusavenueradio.com and on the Dash Radio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Yo, what up, guys? This is Ape Drums, representing Major Lazer, and you're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio, the number one South Asian station on Dash Radio. This is the way we...